Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain i'm as bad as hell and i'm not gonna take this anymore this whole thing is insane this whole thing is insane 300 years ago you'd have been burned at the stake what do all men of power want more power this is now the united states of zombie land this whole thing is insane man is even capable of nothing but destruction Everybody is stuck with the things that they're not proud of. More power. Welcome to the desert of the real. More power. There can be only one. Are you a God-fearing man, Senator? You're such a strange phrase. I've always thought of God as a teacher, as a bringer of light, wisdom, and understanding. You see, I think what you really are afraid of is me. Happy Heresies and welcome to the Desert of the Real. Heresy shouldn't be this much fun, but it is, it just is. Especially with the latest AV Live, audio version for thee in this eternal now. Artist and author Marlena Seven Bremner joined AV Live. She discusses her new book, Hermetic Philosophy and Creative Alchemy. The work is a profound synthesis of magical and occult teaching and initiation into the alchemical opus. Discover how to incorporate hermetic and alchemical principles to awaken inner knowing, liberate the imagination, and live a mystical, creative, and inspired life. The virtual Alexandra Hills were alive with the sound of Gnosis. Full audio for everyone, as it was a solstice celebration. A special show. And more high-octane Gnosis next week, as Dr. Stephen Flowers arrives for a regular podcast to discuss the occult roots of Bolshevism. Trust me, Understanding authoritarian movements is key to surviving next year. And this show delivers the liberating goods. I can't stress how important it is. 
The Virtual Alexandria Academy is now open. Learn about the Gnostic teachings and spiritual rituals in a flexible online course that fits your busy schedule. Get a special holiday discount before it ends. 20% off with code, yes, AMBITE, one word. Regardless of your experience or understanding of the Gnostics, you'll find amazing value in the Virtual Alexandria Academy. The feedback has been phenomenal so far. We need Gnosis more than ever in this age of Hermes, Philip K. Dick world, and Gnostic times. Expect more violence, wars, rising addiction, and suicide rates, mass depression, and societal collapse until more look inward while breaking the outward spell of Yaldibaldi and his Epstein angels. You will not find this high-quality Gnostic and Hermetic wisdom or many of my guests and their insights anywhere else in cyberspace or even meat space. Other than that, let us to our latest AB Live. Write your own gospel and live your own myth. And Merry Christmas for those of you who celebrate it. I remember I am energy, not memory, not self. My name, my personality, my choices all came after me. I was before them and I will be after and everything else is pictures picked up along the way. Fleeting little dreamlets printed on the tissue of my dying brain. And I am the lightning that jumps between. I am the energy firing the neurons and I'm returning. Just by remembering, I'm returning home. It's like a drop of water falling back into the ocean, of which it's always been a part. All things, a part. All of us, a part. You, me, and my little girl, and my mother, and my father, everyone who's ever been, every plant, every animal, every atom, every star, every galaxy, all of it. More galaxies in the universe than grains of sand on the beach, and that's what we're talking about when we say God. The One. The cosmos. And its infinite dreams. We are the cosmos dreaming of itself. It's simply a dream that I think is my life every time. But I'll forget this. I always do. I always forget my dreams. But now, in this split second, in the moment I remember, the instant I remember I comprehend everything at once, there is no time. There is no death. Life is a dream. It's a wish. Made again and again and again and again and again and again and on into eternity. And I am all of it. I am everything. I am all. I am that I am.
And we are live. Welcome, everybody, to the Desert of the Real. Welcome to AB Live. My name is Miguel Connor, and I am your pompous of Gnosis. And happy winter solstice to everybody. The shortest day of the year. And I'd like to start with a... Oh, I'm going to wait for this quote as people go into the chat room so we can get the full weight of it. For those of you watching on video, you just saw... In the intro uh, video, the uh, Virtual Alexandria Academy is open. Information on the show notes. There's still a special until the end of the year. The feedback has been great. And I'm very happy to produce something that's uh, really engaging people who watch this series. So tonight, I'm very excited because we will be talking a lot about Hermes. And as many of you know on this show, Hermes is one of the most important patrons that we have. And there is a book that does him amazing justice. One book that will remain on a very hallowed place in my bookshelf because it's such a, a good history. It's theological, it's mystical, it's inspirational. Let me get this over here. And that is Hermetic Philosophy and Creative Alchemy, the Emerald Tablet, the Corpus Hermeticum, and the Journey Through the Seven Spheres. Incredible book, and I highly recommend it. And we have the author, and that is Marlena Seven Bremner. Seven, thank you very much for coming on Aeon Byte. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Miguel. It's an honor to be here. Pleasure is all ours for sure. And with us too, we've got the Moondog Vance. He's got a very hermetic background for some reason. <laughs> got to change the background. Yeah. Are you still on the up. shining? Yeah. <laughs> a show behind. Yeah, we did a show on the shining. A live show on the shining. <laughs> we'll get caught up at some point. Yeah, yeah. Don't worry. Hermes is the trickster, right? So you're supposed to you're, this is gonna happen. Well, awesome. Well, I see people going into the chat room. You guys know the drill. If you have any questions for us, uh, we'll get to a few tonight. Uh, and uh, always put a lot of question marks, all caps, or do a super chat, and we will do our best to get to it. And again, ugh, there I am, just talking, talking, talking. Uh, as, as I was mentioning, today is the winter solstice, a great time to celebrate. And I saw this quote I thought I'd read out about the solstice from Manly P. Hall, who said, At the winter solstice, the human body itself shares in the rebirth of nature. Hope comes back. Courage is supported by the energies of the solar orb. So it's a great quote, but I don't think Manly lived where I live. We're about to get hit by a blizzard, so it's not going to feel like <laughs> things are getting better. So, Seven, how do you feel about the solstice? Anything changes? Any rituals? Or how is well, it for you? I've been contemplating it for the last few days, and especially today. And, you know, just sort of inwardly rejoicing at the return of the light, the rebirth of the sun, and um, growing into a new season, you know, and all of the things that will unfold through that. But also in that really embracing the darkness and kind of taking a moment to um to kind of go deep within and do some deep self-reflection and go into the cave so to speak yeah yeah it's almost necessary yeah, yeah same with me except i think this morning i woke up at seven like i'm gonna go walk the dogs and i'm like oh my god it's pitch black 
they're gonna have to hold their bladder just a little, half an hour so i see some sunlight so poor dogs yeah. Yeah. don't they're not as mystical as we are seven but <laughs> <laughs> not like summer where it's out at 4 30 in the morning or five in the morning but right so it is what about you vance how is things in california well on the first day of winter, we have 74 degrees outside. <laughs> it's backwards. Yeah, it is. So we're season behind at least. Well, that, that's typical here on the central coast of California. We have, uh, you know, kind of a Native American summer, let's say. Awesome. Well, enjoy it. Definitely jealous. So, uh, Seven, tell us about how you came to write this amazing, amazing book, Hermetic Philosophy and Creative Alchemy. Well, Miguel, it was a long journey, um, a long journey. I studied many different spiritual traditions uh, as well as natural healing modalities and psychology. And um, it was actually through my interest in energy medicine and hands-on healing of the body and the energy body that I came to um, be introduced to hermetic principles. Uh, so I was studying polarity therapy which is a hands-on modality that works with the life force of the body and directs the flow of energy using the positive, neutral, and negative poles. So basically every part of the body can be broken down into these poles. And through understanding those relationships, you can help to facilitate the opening and release of energy blockages. And so it works with the chakras, it works with the caduceus, um, the staff of Hermes, those two serpents that wind up the spinal canal and form the chakras and it works with the elements and how the elements um, exist in the body and their relationships within the body so i was studying this in my early 20s and um you know i realized at a certain point that there was something more to it and um I was being introduced to these hermetic principles of correspondence and this idea that everything is existing within a connected field of mind or energy. And I wanted to go deeper with it. And so I, at the same time, became interested in alchemy. And that became a whole tangent in itself, where I was um, deeply engrossed in the study of alchemy and everything I could get my hands on on the subject. And at the same time, teaching myself how to oil paint. And so those two things kind of fused together and um, formed the basis for the work that I do with creative alchemy. And while I was going through this over the years, I became more interested in uh, where al alchemy came from and what it was based in. And this led me back to hermeticism and studying um, hermetic theology and philosophy and mysticism. So yeah, and then it was just um, years and years of that study and writing, and eventually all of that sort of seemed to be um, cohering into a book. And so the last few years were really just the completion of all of that. Mm, I'm so happy the news decided to bring this book to the world. So, uh, and you would say hermeticism has been rewarding, <clears throat> not just for your mystical life but your creative life your physical life although the hermes is laughing right he's saying it's one and the same right? exactly <laughs> exactly the spiritual and the physical are really not separate in the hermetic viewpoint um but yes i would say it has been incredibly transformative and powerful for me as a path and um affects everything that i do creatively physically 
relationally with other people. Um, it just, yeah, it affects the way that I see the world in general. It is. It's purely amazing. And in fact, I want to read a quote from your book towards the end, a beautiful, inspirational part. Let me pull it up here. And I will read. At the core of the hermetic teaching is the idea that all of life is part of one seamless field of creation, ever changing and yet eternal. In the solitary work of self-realization, we must not lose sight of our obligation to the betterment of all life, which is to say consciousness itself. Our individual contribution will be entirely unique and through continually purifying and refining the content of our bodies, minds, and souls, we can aspire to endow our gifts, oops, made a mistake there, sorry, with authenticity and spiritual potency that will be of great benefit, not only to ourselves, but to others as well. It's a beautiful, yeah, and apologies, I lost my reading glasses, so I had to <laughs> type from your book. But it's a be beautiful, th I mean, it's a beautiful uh, passage, I think, really encompasses the whole hermetic thing. In fact, I always tell people, uh, if you, uh, people are wondering, what can we do about the environment and the wars? And we can't think like the Mayans and some of these very ancient people, even the, the Egyptians. And I'm like... It's all there in the hermetic lore, how we're all connected, as you said, how humanity and the anthropos and nature are always in this love affair, how the animals are created from our souls, as the lady of the cosmos says. I mean, it's it's all there. And if we can think that way, the changes would be incredible. And I'm sure you agree. People go, well, where's a case study? Huh? I said, well, let's look at Florence and the Renaissance. Let's look at Alexander. Let's look at Haran and Baghdad. Let's look at the first continental Congress with the founding father. I mean, wherever Hermes goes, you would agree there is great innovation, change and beauty and connection to the world. Indeed. Yeah. Hermes is the god of innovation. And I'd like to believe that as dark as things appear to be at the moment in the world, that we are on the verge of another hermetic renaissance. Um, the receptivity to these ideas has been really mind-blowing to me. You know, when I tell people what I do, half the time people say they're already becoming interested in this and they don't really know where to turn. And um, a lot of people showing interest in hermeticism, which I think is a great sign. And I do believe that that sort of animistic view of everything being connected and everything being conscious and imbued with life um, is really essential to us turning things around and to help us to understand that um, there's more to the material world and that all matter is infused with spirit. Yeah. Very true. And wow. Well, I'm glad you had such a positive way about uh hermeticism really gripping people I, I hope you're right i don't know uh but uh how do you think what do you think this renaissance was looking or how do you see it changing people or where is it <laughs> well one of the interesting things is just how connected we are through the internet and social media so people like us that are interested in these subjects who might have been um, more isolated before, we can now connect and talk on podcasts and share in forums and find each other very easily. And so that interconnectedness, I think, just amplifies the signal, which is really important. 
and helps us to understand that there are a lot of us out there, even though it may still be kind of a niche um, area of, of thought, there are a lot of us out there. And the more we can kind of continue to converse and share these ideas, the more likely it is that more people will come into contact with them. And how does someone live a hermetic life or, well, let's go, or embrace Hermes or understand Hermeticism because people go, well, do I do astrology? Yeah, that's under the hermetic umbrella. Mm -hmm. Do I do tarot? Yeah, that's magic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, Hermes is sort of the, as you write in your book, he is not at the level of Jesus, Muhammad, or Buddha, but he should be because he is that impactful on Western culture and so much of the traditions that we have today. I mentioned some of the places that literally changed the world. But how do you embrace, uh, how, how do you practice Hermeticism, Seven? Well, I think at the very basic level, it would be that view of the world as everything being connected and having a an understanding of this idea of correspondence, which we learn about in the Emerald Tablet. That which is above is like that which is below. And that which is below is like that which is above, meaning the human physiology is a reflection and a microcosm of the celestial metaphysical reality. And so understanding that we are, we contain the universe within us, like a hologram, you know, every um, part contains the whole. And I think that would be essentially the beginning of a hermetic path would just be coming to understand these hermetic principles. Um, thinking about polarity and these ideas of attraction and repulsion and striving for more of a neutral, balanced, um, moderate approach to life. Um, it would be a path of piety and devotion as well. So you can take this as far as you want, but that devotional approach to the art would be applied through our appreciation and devotion towards the planetary gods. Um, and that could include, you know, a planetary magic practice. Um, it could include working with astrology. Um, it could include following the alchemical path and, um, anything else that you want to include in the hermetic umbrella, you know, these other things like Rosicrucianism and theosophy and Kabbalah. Um, there's, there's a lot within the Western esoteric tradition that could be considered hermetic. So, yeah, all of these things you might find um, practiced by someone on the hermetic path. Well said, yeah, there's always Hermes in the background just telling you, I'm here. Go read the original text. They will, mm -hmm. once you read them with the right mind, they will blow your, they will blow your mind, your news. And uh, at the same time, and let me know if you've thought of this, but uh, I always say on the show, this is the age of Hermes, for better mm -hmm. or worse. And uh, it's not original. It was a Jungian Dennis Merritt on my friend uh, Laura London's podcast, speaking of Jung. And this is around two, early 2020. And he said, this is the age of Hermes. We are going through a huge transition. Uh, there are doorways opening. It's a time of the trickster. It's a time where reality is falling apart and we got to go down into the underworld. And and people are like, what do you mean? I said, well, you see Hermes everywhere. You see him as a the trickster with Trump and Elon Musk. You see this virus that nobody can understand and comes in and out. You see him with cryptocurrency. It's like mm -hmm. he's got his fingers everywhere and we are transitioning to a completely different world and it's do we 
allow Hermes to guide us or do we, he abandoned us in the underworld? What do you think of these? This? <laughs> well, my hope actually is that all of this technology and all of this trickster energy that we're experiencing and the virus included is all sort of steering us in a direction of remembering our essential nature. So if we look at the internet, for instance, and how we're all connected through the internet, this is sort of a reflection of the human mind itself, where all things are contained within the human mind. And you read this in the Hermeticum, where you know you think of being in a place and automatically you're there, there's nothing blocking you. And this is the power of the imagination. So, so much is available to us through the mind, and yet we have technology that we sort of we've created this externalized expression of that. Um, so hopefully this will lead us to realize that we have this within us, but right now we're sort of just having fun with these tools that we've created, you know? And yeah, that's kind <laughs> yeah, of well said. Yeah, you're And you're right. Hermes is the God of innovation and technology, but Hermeticism is very about, we take care of nature. It's that one discipline or God that says, we take care of both sides, right? Yes, indeed. Yeah. It's um, definitely implied in the hermetic teachings that we are stewards of nature, that we're here to take care of it. And, you know, that the divine, that God is present throughout all things. And so that's our sort of um, responsibility is to care for that and to honor it, not to um, not to destroy it. <laughs> and when somebody ask you, well, who is Hermes? Are you able to give a, a short description or? Uh, yeah, Again, it's... I've got this light on me. I'm trying to figure out where it's coming from. It's the light of the caduceus. It's no. the sun <laughs> shining through my back window, reflecting through my other window. And it just happens to be hitting right on my face. But let's see if I can turn. Oh, that's okay. We need a chorus. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> <Great> chorus. <laughs> um, who is Hermes? All right, so we've got the Greek Hermes, right? The, um, one moment here. It's not leaving me alone. <laughs> the right. gods have like one of those red lights for cats <laughs> that they're doing it to you. <laughs> well, so we've got the Greek Hermes, who is the, the trickster, the god of the liar, um, the god of shepherds and thieves. And that's usually who people think of when we hear the name Hermes. But Hermes Trismegistus, the patron deity of the Hermetic tradition, um, is like Hermes thrice greatest. His name means um, he refers to the three principles expressed in all of creation. And Hermes Trismegistus is actually a syncretic form of the ancient Egyptian deity Thoth and the Greek Hermes, and has also incorporated the Roman Mercury. So um, he expresses all of their attributes, but um, when we think of the Egyptian Thoth, this is the god of wisdom, the god of writing, of the word, the divine word, and the power of the word, magic, um, the god of alchemy, and mathematics, and engineering, um, also astrology. So the sacred sciences of Hermeticism um, or arts of Hermeticism, alchemy, astrology, and magic are attributed to this deity Thoth, and he brought these forth to humanity. And we read about, um, through the Egyptian priest Manetho, of there being a first Hermes, um, and this was the Egyptian Thoth, and he um, inscribed the sacred teachings onto hieroglyphs before 
the mythical flood. And then the second Hermes, who was Hermes Trismegistus, um, retrieved these teachings from the hieroglyphs and inscribed them into books. And so that's where we get the teachings of Hermes. And um, all of the writings that were produced like in the first few centuries of the common era, that which we know of as the Hermetica, so the Corpus Hermeticum, um, the excerpts of Stobius, um, the, or the Coptic uh, scriptures from Nag Hammadi, um, these different Hermetic texts were all written pseudonymously by Hermes. We don't know who actually wrote them, um, probably you know, Greek philosophers living in Egypt or maybe Egyptian priests, but they were attributed to Hermes. Yeah, it should be noted that, yeah, even as far back as 300 BC, everything that was astrology, magic, anything occult fell under the umbrella of Hermes and thought. He was uh, always the figure that took care of us in the liminal spaces, the mystics, the outcasts. Mm -hmm. He was always there, always a great friend of humanity. I think he's one of the Greek gods who rarely screws with humans, unlike the other Olympians. And even as uh, scholars have said, even in the Odyssey, people think, well, it's Athena helping Odysseus, but it's actually Hermes is the one that mostly helps uh, Odysseus. And again, we have yeah, Athena and Hermes, we've got the Logos and Sophia figures, the great uh, the great helpers of how to become human and get through the voyages of history. So, and so I guess you would say, instead of the Depeche Mode, your own personal <laughs> Jesus, just find your own personal <laughs> Hermes. Yeah, well, Hermes, I love how you put that. Hermes is a psychopomp, so he helps us to connect the disparate parts of ourselves. He helps us journey into the underworld and to come back out again. And he helps to facilitate messages between the heavens and humanity. So between the above and the below, those higher parts of ourselves and our egoic nature. So yeah, Hermes is there for us. He's our buddy. He's ready to help us out. We just, yeah, need to open up to his inspiration and wisdom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's gonna rock our world because he's always <laughs> a trickster. I mean, that's what change. That's what I keep telling you want to change. It's going to be change. It's not going to be, I get to keep this and this friendship and this yeah. object. No, you, you go on a journey. He's yeah. not the God of destinations. He's the God of journeys. Well put. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, as you said, there's a beautiful part in your book where you talk about Persephone, the great story of ancient times and Persephone, like, is the great symbol of unconscious and awareness and who's the one that every year takes her back and forth hermes yeah it's beautiful yeah and, that, uh, that descent into the darkness into the hell realms that we all experience at one point or another yeah and it should be noted <laughs> it's always it's such a fascinating story but most people don't realize that when persephone was taken down there yeah there was no consent it was horrible but she took her job seriously. She took the being the goddess of death very seriously. When Odysseus is in Hades, he wasn't afraid of the Cerberus or Titans. He was afraid of one figure that was Persephone, because when she's the goddess of death, she brings pure pain and hell into mm. her soul. So again, but hey, she took her job seriously. What are you going to do? <laughs> And uh, one of the concepts, I think I mentioned the noose, that's a concept like Hermes. It's so hard to wrap your mind around because it seems in every text you read, the author has a different definition. How would you define the noose, Evan? 
Mm. The noose I think of as the divine mind. Um, it's a way that Hermes communicates with us, the logos. So the divine word that comes through to us. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a difficult word to define and you read different definitions of it everywhere. But yeah, that's how I think of it as the divine mind, not just mind, but yeah, that. So right. each of us, you would say, has a news or a micro news? <laughs> micro news. Sounds like a computer store, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, I think we all, have, we all have access to the news. Yes. Good. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the capacity to see into the other worlds. Yeah. And uh, I also love, too, you write in your book that the book of Genesis there's a good argument to say that it influences the corpus hermeticum. That might surprise some people. What What's the evidence, Evan? Well, it's really in the, um, I think, in the first book of the corpus hermeticum, in the vision of uh, Hermes, where he meets this deity named Pamandris, who calls himself um, the mind of sovereignty. And Pamandris gives to Hermes basically a vision of creation. And it's this vision of creation that I think can be compared to Genesis, um, especially um, everything begins in a sort of watery darkness. And this is really terrifying to Hermes as he's observing it. And he says it looks like a roiling serpent and um, this watery darkness, though, um, I believe the next thing that happens is there's a voice that appears on the surface of the watery darkness. And it's from this that the separation of the elements begins and the whole process of creation. And so I think it's that idea of the word um, bringing forth life that really reflects Genesis. But, you know, the Hermetic teachings, they were developing right alongside early Christianity and Gnosticism. So there's a lot of influence. And, um, yeah, I don't really have an opinion as to whether one was before the other necessarily. But, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think we've been asking the wrong question because... It's not like Hermeticism ever started. It just it's a continuation of the Egyptian mystery, same with Gnosticism, except mm -hmm. it kind of took on the culture around it and some of the history, but it is just a continuation, you would agree. It's ancient, but it's mm -hmm. new. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was definitely a syncretic theology and view of the world and rooted in ancient Egypt. And there's so many different places throughout the Hermetica that you see that Egyptian um, Egyptian culture and religion appearing and magical practice as well. Yeah, indeed. And what about something that most occultists, New Agers, and even some scholars like to avoid or kind of brush under the table? But the Corpus Hermeticum and the Hermetic writings are beautiful. They're so inspiring. Mm -hmm. It's, but like you said, once you get in your mind that principle of connectivity and correspondence it's you can feel it inside but mm -hmm. there is plenty on the universe being kind of a prison there's plenty of you know bad mouthing the body there's evil spirits i think it's in chapter 13 how do you mm -hmm. uh what do you tell people when how do you balance this out well it's true there's sort of um a little bit of contradiction throughout the corpus hermeticum and so in some tracts of the corpus you read about um, the divinity of all matter and God being present throughout all things and all things being part of one. And in other tracts you read about the evil nature of the body and how we should um, put aside the senses of the body and focus solely on the mind and the spirit. And um, 
there's no doubt that there's that contradiction, but I don't believe that it really is a contradiction. I think it's just two different ways of viewing reality that are necessary at different points on the path, you know? And so early on, it might be necessary for us to have more of a, um, you know, divinized view of all of reality to instill that sense of connectivity. And later on, as we're getting um, further along on in our initiation and working more and more to separate from the body and to um, rise up through the seven spheres, as it talks about in the Hermetica, um, then it becomes more necessary to kind of separate from the body and to see it in a way as something that's hindering you from your progress. But really, I think it's also about just realizing that there's more to our existence than the physical body. And so it's necessary to understand that. Um, and in that way, we sort of have to shun the body a little bit to, to focus on that spiritual part of ourselves. Yeah, well said. I mean, I think the Hermetics is like the Gnostics saw the universe for what it was, a place of dualities and shadows and everything. And like you said, all religions say don't identify too much with the body or matter regardless whether it's good evil and illusion they say look uh like you said at some point you've got to take that flight especially if you want to get those powers to help heal the universe itself which is isn't that the the goal of hermeticism like the kabbalistic umulan how to get everything healed and working again well yeah if we are if we contain God within us and we're just a, a window of that one divine light that's emanating through all things, then the more that we can purify and refine and divinize our own consciousness, the more we're contributing to that within the whole. So yeah, I do believe that that's ultimately the goal is for that everything to be returned to the one. I would say so too. Yeah, I would definitely want to showcase your wonderful art, but I have one more question and maybe some audience questions, if sure. you don't mind. But uh, the Nag Hammadi Library's Discourse of the 8th of the 9th, we got to talk about the Nag Hammadi Library. You say it's important and all scholars agree it's a, almost a game changer. Why is it important? Why sh people should go and read it immediately? <laughs> well, <laughs> After they buy your book. After they buy your book. <laughs> I think it might be better to start with the Corpus Hermeticum and then to... Um, graduate to the discourse of the eighth and ninth um, <laughs> because it is a more advanced scripture, a more advanced tractate and represents the final initiation um, into the level of the eighth sphere. And so the initial work of the initiate is to um, transcend the seven planetary energies or spheres. Um, and these are the harmony of fate, um, the rulers of fate. And the way I see it, they are archetypal energies that are working through us. And so long as we're not conscious of them, they're just kind of guiding us and influencing our decisions and um, the events of our lives. But the more conscious we become of them, the more we can come to know them um, and integrate them, the more we gain um, agency over our own fate. And through that, then we're able to ascend to this eighth sphere, which is the sphere of souls or the sphere of the fixed stars. And within the eighth sphere, which is also called the creative or the formative sphere, we're clothed in our own proper power. So we're returned to our co-creative capacities with the divine. We are able to essentially create things 
through the imagination without the hindrance of these energies that are pulling us through attraction and repulsion in all these different directions. Our energy is um, unified through the seven spheres. And like a magnet, we're able to magnetize the things that we want to generate within our experience. So the eighth sphere is really this place of being in complete communion with that creative capacity and getting ourselves, our egos out of the way. And um, from there, the initiate can also ascend to the ninth sphere and connect with the divine mind. And then there's a 10th sphere beyond that, which is the unbegotten source of all things, um, the deity itself, God, the, the one that's emanating all things from itself. So we can sort of come close to contacting that through the divine mind. And um, yeah, the divine mind, I would say, and also the Agdoad, the eighth sphere, are both spheres where we connect with Hermes and where Hermes helps us to connect with that highest, most exalted part of ourselves. Well said. Yeah. Again, I love how you keep using imagination. If we can block all these things, we realize we are pure imagination. That's our Mm -hmm. gift as humans. As you write in your book, we have the advantage because the hermetics say we are both human and uh, divine. As uh, Terry Pratchard said, we are where the fallen angel meets the rising ape. We are where heaven Mm -hmm. and earth. So as humans, we have this idea of imagination where you can change reality itself, but it's also a huge responsibility. It's, uh, that's why we're here to be the, as you said, the caretakers of the cosmos. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're all creating through the imagination every day, you know, through our thoughts. And that's what the Egyptians understood. It was like thoughts and words have power. And so they were very intentional with the way that they wrote their hieroglyphs and the words that they used and the way they, intone their magical invocations um, because that is the power of creation. And we're not really taught that, you know, we're not taught to observe our thoughts um, early on and that these have power and that we have the ability to actually manifest things through our thoughts. We're not made aware of that. And, you know, some of us through the spiritual path and we come to find that out, um, we come to understand that, but it really is essential to what we're doing here on earth is coming to understand the power that we have um, through our minds and our imaginations and using that to the best of our abilities for, for the good of all, you know, because essentially there is no actual self, you know, the self is the all as well. So yeah. Beautifully said. Yeah. And I think the, the Nagamari library texts, the hermetic texts have more about the rituals and the preparation so we can understand. But like you said, mm-hmm. the rituals are like contemplate, sit still, you know, see the world, create. It's all there. It's really beautiful. And mm-hmm. unlike unlike the the Gnostics were obsessed, had a huge divine feminine literature or honoring, but the, the hermetics don't seem to have that, do they? Except for Isis, I suppose. Yeah, you see Isis appear um, not so much in the Corpus Hermeticum, but in the um, excerpts of Stobius um, in the Virgin of the World is the name of the text. Um, That's a transmission of Isis to her son Horus, where she um, helps him through his rebirthing process and initiation. Um, But yeah, there isn't a lot of focus on the feminine divinity, but there is what you see is a balance of the polarities and that um, 
the gods are all male and female. And Hermes is the most David Bowie androgynous <laughs> you can ever come up with in the world. So it <laughs> kind of doesn't matter, right? <laughs> uh, Vance, do you have a question for Seven or the audience? Oh, There's we got a lot some of writing about here. figs. It's very yeah. Weird. Well, that was one uh -huh. of them. Phi just started out by saying, "Why aren't there figs mentioned in separating from the body?" And uh, when I asked him about it, because I didn't understand, he was mentioning all the different references, the uh, Buddha under the Bodhi tree. The Bodhi tree is the same as the fig tree and the fig mm -hmm. tree in the Garden of Eden. What do you um, ha know about the fig tree symbolism, in, if, if there is any, in, in Hermeticism? Um, I don't know of any in Hermeticism. I know of some in the Egyptian lore. Um, and I believe it might be a sacred tree related to Osiris um, and also to the constellation Orion and having to do with um, the seed of Osiris being inseminated into the sacred fig tree, or sometimes I think it's oh. a sycamore. Um, I don't know much more beyond that, but yeah, there's a relationship with Osiris and which is interesting being the solstice and all like Osiris was um, celebrated on this day and mm -hmm. um, the Egyptians um, ritually enacted the raising of the Jed pillar uh, related to Osiris. So the Jed pillar was considered the sacrum or the backbone of Osiris. And through raising the Jed pillar, they were helping to resurrect um, the dead God who had been murdered by Seth. And this was, um, also a celebration of Isis and her regenerative powers and life-giving powers. And Jesus okay, curses the fig tree. So I guess he was, <laughs> he had a beef with Osiris. <laughs> now we find the truth. <laughs> well, uh, okay. And uh, Herbert Rosenbaum wanted to know uh, if there's a connection between uh, Thoth and Azathoth. Both and Azathoth. Um, Azathoth, I believe is, um, a character that we encounter in the Greek magical papyri and referring to the Lovecraft. end, the end and mm -hmm. the beginning of all things, maybe Lovecraft too. Um, <laughs> I don't know um, for certain that there's a connection, but I would say yes, probably Okay. <laughs> just because names were, you know, used intentionally. And if Thoth is included in a name, I would think there is some connection there. And it should be mentioned too, for those who still want to resist, this was in ancient times. This was John D. But Enoch and Hermes are very connected, associated. Hermes and Odin, that always freaks people out. But when you look at things, you're like, oh, you know, he's around. He was around in the medieval times and later. So. Oh, yes. Yes. Okay. Um, then um, um, Asterox Foundation, um, our friend Anon, wanted to know, uh, he said, Hermes seems like an influencing consciousness. Would you say that he, she is the same as, or a companion to the Christ consciousness? So the relationship between Hermes and Christ. I think so. Yeah. I think, you know, Mercury Hermes is often alchemically described as the divine child or the androgynous child um, or the divine androgen and sort of this savior figure that comes through the union of the mother and father. And I think there's a lot of parallels there with the birth of Christ as this sort of savior um and redeeming light entering the world so yeah yeah and it's you yeah, know and it should be mentioned too that uh 
Philo of Alexandria, he, when he was trying to create a Logos theology using the Hebrew Bible, he just went out and said, the Logos is Hermes. Of course, <laughs> Christian church fathers were horrified, but sorry, the cat was out of the bag by then. <laughs> yeah, I don't even test the end of the connection, right? Wasn't there Hermeticism kind of sneaking in, you know, to the, the Catholic church, at least the Protestants kind of did away with it. The, the Greek, the Byzantine Empire embraced Hermes a lot of times. Emperor, he was, he was fine with Greek Orthodox theology for many. Sometimes he'd go out, you know, somebody say he's heresy, but very influential to uh, Greek Orthodoxy. Well, and in the Renaissance, Hermes was seen as a prophet of Christ, mm -hmm. as a predecessor, sometimes um, living at the same time as Moses, or even like the same person as Moses. So he was seen more as a prophet of the Christ. And so he was accepted in the Renaissance for that reason. Then he got caught <laughs> <laughs> and vilified. <laughs> yeah. 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 Fell out Oracle of favor Weird. with the church. Yeah. Oracle Weird wanted to know um, if you think that we might be the demiurge being cleansed of our darknesses. How about that concept? Or, you know. Is is he referring to the Gnostic idea of the demiurge? Yeah, I, well, I, he didn't say, but yeah, it sounds like it. Um, well, that's an interesting thought. I mean, in the Hermetic view of the world, we are sort of in this process of purification and refinement, right? And um, you could see that as an evil demiurge existing within us. But in the Hermetic perspective, it's the um, the seven rulers of fate. And they're not really evil, except apparently. And that's necessary for fate to unfold. Um, it's just a part of how things are, but we do have the power to overcome that and to transcend that. Um, but this idea of good and evil, like all of that kind of becomes somewhat irrelevant um, on the hermetic path, because we start to see that everything contains a little bit of its opposite and um, everything can be transmuted and essentially the nature of reality is a unity. So evil and good are really the same thing. They're just different ends of the spectrum. Yeah, yeah I think uh, yeah, the, yeah, the hermetics were like, we are God trying to find ourselves. The Gnostics took a little step. They went deaf psychologist. We are God <laughs> who went insane and now we got to restore our sanity. And they said, insane people do some horrible things, insane spirits. So that's mm -hmm. really the difference. <laughs> <laughs> well, does Hermeticism really say who we are? I mean, I, through all the practices and rituals and so forth and the ideas of ascending, where do we come from? Who are we for all one and all that? Uh, what does Hermeticism actually say about who humans really are? Well, in the creation story, um, the one, the supreme God, he created a second mind. So he did create a demiurge, but this demiurge was just sort of a creator God. It wasn't evil in any way. And it was through this demiurge that the gods were created, the seven spheres, and then the first human being, the Anthropos, who was perfect and who had all the same creative capacities as, um, as the demiurge and existed in that creative sphere. And um, this first human wanted to look down through the spheres and behold nature and upon beholding nature, fell in love with their own reflection and uh -oh. was... In the beginning, this first human was male-female, and um, upon falling in love with nature and nature falling in love with the image of the human, which was the image of God, um, 
this love affair takes place and the human descends into matter and descends through those seven spheres and takes on all the energies of these seven rulers and then is bound by fate and also becomes um, separated between the sexes as all things become separated in the process of creation and um, then has the duality of being both divine and human, both immortal and mortal. And essentially God is within the human being, within the, um, the soul and the mind of the human being. And it's our task to come into contact with that part of ourselves and to realize our essential immortal nature. And we do this while we're alive, while we're living this mortal life in the physical body. And that's this kind of hermetic death and rebirth process is like coming to terms with that and then realizing the essential nature. Yeah, it's pretty similar to Gnosticism, actually, and some Platonism mm -hmm. in there, too. But the good yeah. demiurge. The myth of Narcissus, too. They definitely incorporate the myth of Narcissus was important to them, obviously. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's just wonderful stuff. Well, if you don't mind, can we let's take a look at your some of your art because this is also sure. true magic. It's amazing stuff. Let's see, where's my share screen? Okay, can everybody see or? Yep, I see it. Okay, well, tell us what this is. Uh, this painting is called the Book of Blue Vitriol, and. Um, this was a very Venusian exploration, and you can see the star of Venus there on the right-hand side and the crescent moon, which are both descending in the western horizon. Um, so this was Venus as the evening star, the Vespertine star, and she was just about to disappear for her journey into the underworld. So when I started this painting, I myself was going <laughs> along with Venus into the underworld. Little did I know. Um, and this was also a depiction of a place that I live very close to. It's called Plaza Blanca. And it's a really beautiful canyon of these immense limestone rocks and pillars that you can hike through. And so I just, I had this vision while I was hiking out there, looking up the, at these rocks and sort of um, seeing things within the rocks. And so that was the birth of the painting was a desire to kind of play with that idea and what I had seen in the rocks that day. And the title of the painting, The Book of Blue Vitriol, refers to uh, vitriolic acid created from copper. And so copper mm. is the metal of Venus and the heart. And um, it's said to dissolve all metals except for gold. And so there's this kind of idea of dissolution and dissolving into a sort of madness, um, divine madness, and um, going down the rabbit hole is a big theme in the painting. Um, it was really actually quite maddening um, depicting all the details in the rocks. And I thought I was never going to finish. And I really felt like I was losing my mind. <laughs> 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 so yeah, that's a little bit about that one without getting too personal, but yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Okay. This is the one I love this one. My favorite one. Yeah. This one is called uh, Jupiter's dream, the conjunction of the sun and moon. And so the lion and the unicorn, both Jupiterian animals in different respects, um, they've sort of been having this battle and you can see a little bit of blood has been shed. There's a little bit mm -hmm. of a wound on the lion and the unicorn's heart is kind of bursting open in this bloody rose. 
and yet they've come to peace. And so they're standing here in this sort of peaceful um, relationship to each other. Um, this one was started when I was still living in Olympia and it was a very spontaneous painting. I, um, I had this giant canvas, it's about five by six feet and it sat in my studio for years, just blank. And I wanted to paint a lion on it. Um, I thought I was gonna do this alchemical uh, image of the green lion devouring the sun. But when it came down to it, the inspiration hit me in a flash and I just started going at the canvas with some charcoal. And um, pretty soon I saw the glyph of Jupiter, which if you look at the crescent of the unicorn's horn and connect that with the cross of the fence in the foreground, you see the glyph of Jupiter there. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So that, yeah, that came through really clear <clears throat> in the face of the unicorn and the face of the lion. And then from there, it was just a matter of trying to figure out how the rest of it fit together. And that was a whole journey in itself. Um, but yeah, this idea of reconciling the lunar and solar principles within the self. And through that, being able to access our Jupiterian expansion and liberation of creative energy. And so that's a big theme in the painting. And you see the colors red and white, uh, which reference the alchemical sulfur and mercury. And um, that's how the alchemists portray those opposing principles. Um, and their union is what produces the philosopher's stone. And um, that's represented here with the acorn that's being um, spat out by the lion and which the serpent is ready to to eat up there yeah wonderful okay let's go to another one that's the cover of your book too that's the cover of the book yeah this one's called conjunctio appositorum um and it's a also a balance between the opposing principles of order and chaos order represented by the swan and chaos by the crocodile. And also the swan and crocodile uh, represent Jupiter and Saturn. So these opposing ideas of um, order and chaos, but also expansion and liberation and freedom opposed to limitation and contraction and rigidity and rules. Um, so they are intertwined but they're not locked together they can let go at any time so there's this sort of voluntary peace between these two principles and also they create between them the interlocking circles creates the vesica piscis which is the um, window of divinity it's a very venusian symbol um <clears throat> and union, yeah union of the two opposing principles in that beautiful okay yeah, it's great. And this is the crossroads in the Garden of Venus, another very uh, intense Venusian journey. And um, I was thinking of Venus as the morning star in this one, uh, Lucifer, the light bearer. So that's why I portrayed the goat. I really wanted to portray the goat as Lucifer and this idea of Venus beckoning us out of the darkness but also venus drawing us into the darkness so sometimes it's necessary for us to embark on the underworld journey um much like inanna does in the mesopotamian 
mythology where she voluntarily gives up heaven and earth to go into the underworld, um, essentially to meet with her darker side, her darker nature, her sister, Ereshkigal, who rules the underworld. So I was thinking about that with Venus as this sort of um, light that lures us into the darkness, but also shows us the way out and helps us to reemerge. And um, yeah, there's a lot going on in this one, but essentially you can see to the right of the goat, there's these seven tiny little um, divinities that represent the planet. And they're going on this journey of transformation where they're encountering a serpent and they kind of have the option to go out uh, and follow that, the carpet's trajectory into space and into the tail mm -hmm. of the scorpion, um, which is kind of hidden back there in the stars. Um, or they can follow the way of the goat, which leads over to this sort of um, paradise garden over there where all of the elements are interacting and life is unfolding. Wonderful. All right, let's go to the next one. The Death of the Profane. Um, this was a pretty early painting. I uh, was interested in kind of portraying some of the different chakras. And so this had to do with the upper chakras of the throat, third eye and the crown. And really it's about rising up to that realization of our essential nature through the confrontation with death. So being able to look death in the face and accept that we are mortal and yet at the same time we're eternal and that that's just an aspect of, of what we are, um, but it doesn't define us. And so that's how we rise up into these higher chakras and realize um, these higher parts of ourselves is through a reconciliation with, with death and with things that are ever changing and in flux. So, yeah, letting go of those things that are hindering us from our spiritual progress is also part of the theme here. Nice. Yeah, definitely has a Grateful Dead kind of vibe. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> and this is another chakra painting called The Gates of Paradise. And so this one's really focused on the heart chakra. Um, but you can see above and below the heart these kind of openings. And those are the two gates. Um, between the above and the below, um, our earthly nature and our celestial nature. And it's said that there's two peacocks that stand guard at the gates of paradise. And so here's the two peacocks. And when we are able to connect the energies between the above and the below and hold both our earthly and our celestial natures in one, then we can expand and open the heart to, um, you know, blossom and bear fruit and open up in this sort of beautiful display of love that comes through the heart. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very powerful indeed. And as you said, uh, the chakras you equate to the kadushas. And I forgot, I think, mm -hmm. in the Hesiod's uh, Theogony, when, when Apollo gives him the kadushas, one of the things is that Hermes is no longer bound by fate or destiny, which puts him even separate than the other gods. The other gods have to obey destiny and fate. He's the one being in, that can, he doesn't have to worry about that. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. So get your caduceus, people. <laughs> and this is called um, 
Harmonia Elementorum, so balance of the elements. And we see here the zodiac in this sort of stained glass window, um, looking out to a, a beautiful sky. And this is like the window of the soul and the different um, zodiacal influences through which the planets are moving. And the Ouroboros, the snake eating its own tail as a symbol of death and regeneration and eternal cycles of becoming and unfolding and dying and regeneration. And we also see here a sort of Rosicrucian symbol, the rose and the cross. So the union of spirit and matter. And that's emphasized also by um, these different, the hexagram and the pentagram above and below representing um, the macrocosm and the microcosm. Um, so the heavenly and the celestial and then the world of the human. And yeah, then there's some different correspondences there within that golden diamond. And all of this is contained within that Vesica symbol, Vesica Piscis symbol. So the womb of creation, the window of the soul. Um, and the different correspondences, the main ones I want to point out are just the the four powers of the Sphinx, So, uh, which Eliphas Levy wrote about. But um, they're in Latin. So it's sire, adere, vele, and tessere, um, which if I'm getting this correct, it's to know, to dare, to will, and to keep silent. So these are the four powers of the Sphinx or the powers of the magician. Um, yeah. Incredible stuff. All right, let's see. And this is another very alchemical, um, idealistic vision of the union between the opposites. Again, another Venusian painting, but this one more harmonious and more of a you know final realization of some essential truth being expressed here. Um, so the two fish rising up from the watery depths, kind of this idea of the primal pair, the lunar and solar king and queen, masculine, feminine, sulfur, mercury. These are sort of existing within the unconscious. And it's our task to draw them up out of the unconscious waters and to bring them to union and integrate them. And so that's what's being expressed here is that union and integration. And in the um, in the hexagram that you see above them, this is sort of a all of the geometry in this is based on the flower of life. So all of these interconnecting circles that express um, consciousness and that upper um, six pointed star, you can see the red and the white, but also their shadows are being integrated. They are those blackfish. Um, and then part of the work of this painting was also for me going through my own purification process. And you can see that in the fog. This is, um, the setting for this is the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. Um, so the fog there kind of represents these different emergent forms that I was dealing with in this purification process. Yeah, I see. It's beautiful. Well, we are a little bit over an hour. Do you have more time or do you need to jump off? Um, yeah, I've got some more time. All right, cool. Yeah. So we can go through all this amazing art and uh, I'm assuming... It must be very therapeutic, is it? Or do you ever have experiences uh, after the art or during the art or? Oh yeah, I mean, there is definitely an alchemical process going on and a communication between the art and myself. So 
which is also a communication between the unconscious and myself, my ego. And um, things will emerge in a painting sometimes spontaneously that I don't understand. Or sometimes when I begin in an automatic way with a painting, it'll have a composition that's really like bizarre and doesn't make any sense to me. But if I trust the process and I listen to what's emerging, then it reveals itself in time. So it's a very educational, um, quite magical process for me. Yeah, bet. Yeah, and you were recently in Egypt, right? That must have been amazing. Mm -hmm. oh, oh, so yeah. jealous. Yeah. And Manzanita and I were talking over email. Oh, poor thing. She's in Egypt <laughs> while we're here, just freezing. <laughs> oh man, I can't wait to go back. It was a really, really incredible experience. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I feel like my um, work there is not done. Yeah, yeah. If it's calling, I'm sure your consciousness just expanded big time. Mm -hmm. so, as Jung said, the experience of the self is the defeat of the ego. So that's what it's all about. <laughs> <laughs> Um, this is a more recent painting called Mater Harmonia. Um, so Mater being like the primal matter, the first matter of creation, but also like Mater the mother. So this is the mother of the harmony. And so essentially she is, um, she has transcended the seven fate spheres. And so we see reference to that with the um, seven peacock feathers, symbol of transformation and the seven um, monarch butterflies, also a symbol of transformation. And um, the bear is an Indian sloth bear, which actually came to me through a dream. Uh, I really didn't know much about them before. Those are pretty evil and aggressive animals, aren't they? Well, they certainly don't like humans. They um, <laughs> are responsible for a lot of human deaths, and they have these, okay. like, insane claws. Um, yeah, they're scary. But they've also been, you know pretty abused over the centuries and used as these like dancing bears and oh, really? um, yeah yeah so it's not a great thing but um came to me in a dream and so this idea of sort of dancing with the harmony you know like rising above it but dancing with it so we become more creative with the way that fate is um playing with us at the same time um and yeah this serpent instrument is in the shape of a lyre and so the bear kind of takes the place of the seven strings of the lyre so the music is happening within the self the harmony of the spheres is kind of um it's become a true harmony mm, wonderful okay and this is roasting cinnabar so the i believe the ancient chinese alchemists would actually roast pieces of cinnabar to extract the mercury because uh, mm -hmm. there's mercury in it. And so if you get it hot enough, the mercury will kind of seep out in these little balls. And so that's what you're seeing here is a piece of cinnabar with one of those balls of mercury that's emerged from it. And that mercury is reflecting um, the above, which is the sun and the moon. And then you see the symbol or the sigil for mercury as the symbol of their union or the divine androgynous child that's birthed from their union. And I also like that the cinnabar is shaped like a mountain in this because it implies that that mercury has sort of emerged from the prison where it's been held, released through the spiritual fire and ascended this mountain um, to unite the, the father and the mother. Mm -hmm. Incredible. All right, we go to number two. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> 
Um, and this one is called the rule of submission, which is actually a reference to a line in the, um, in Dune. Um, I was listening to Dune at the time, and this was a sort of spontaneous painting that came out. Um, so when I say spontaneous, I'm referring to like how the surrealists would just use this automatic process to allow things from the unconscious to emerge spontaneously. And so that's how this one began. It was just like red paint on a little panel. It's a really small painting. I think it's just eight by eight inches. And um, the faces of the lions appeared. And so everything kind of emerged from that. Um, but yeah, at the time I was kind of, I was going through a bit of a hard time mentally. And I think hearing that line in Dune, the rule of submission, really it's something just clicked for me. And it was like, if you just surrender to this force that's working through you, then the battle will end. Like you don't have to keep fighting, just <laughs> surrender and let right. it happen. And that was sort of, um, you know, the power that comes through that surrender. Mm. Makes sense. Okay. And this is called the golden pill. Um, and we see here different levels of consciousness um, of the tiger. So three different levels of consciousness there. Um, and this sort of almost storybook unfolding with the salamanders opening up this uh, skunk cabbage. Um, I painted this when I was living in Olympia. So the skunk cabbage are like a really powerful, potent flower that opens up in the swamps in the spring. And they're huge and they've got these huge green uh, cabbage-like leaves and they're really amazing. Um, they're also called swamp lanterns. So yeah. my thought with this painting was that it's about transmutation of dark kind of putrefying energies that are represented in the swamp. Um, and that regeneration of life that's also present in the swamp, but sort of a um, gentle heat. You know, it's not like a red fiery heat. It's more of a gentle heat of like a lantern glowing. Um, and that this sort of sustained gentle heat could be something that would transmute what otherwise might be some kind of heavy toxic or like putrefying energies. Beautiful, wonderful. And this is the composition of the waters, which is a reference to um, the visions of Zosimos, who uh, in his visions, he saw all sorts of things, but like people in burning pillars of flame and altars with giant bowls of boiling water and people being flayed and all kinds of <laughs> awful things. Um, so at the time I was going through my own sort of uh, process like that of, um, dissolution and allowing or not really allowing it was just sort of happening the the veil between um worlds was very thin for me at the time and um that was all expressed in this painting which i spent eight months working on um and certainly felt like uh everything was in me and i was in everything and really had that sense of all things being connected but almost to the point where it gets to be dangerous when you lose yourself in it. And so I definitely had to pull myself back out of that and find solid ground again. But, you know, there's a little bit of, of madness that's necessary at certain points in the work, you know, to really like 
step into these realms of intense inspiration. And so that's what's being expressed here. And just um, how rich the world can be when you start to see it in a symbolic way. And those symbols are speaking to you quite regularly. And yeah. Yeah, people in the chat are trying to, by your art, guess your sign. I heard Leo or Scorpio. Are they right? Oh, <laughs> not Leo, um, not Scorpio. Well, then Libra? keep guessing, people. Keep guessing. <laughs> keep uh, guessing. Aries. <laughs> I will say it's a fire sign, but no, it's not Aries. <laughs> oh. oh, well. Uh, now we got the big guy himself. Yeah, this is called the Transfiguration of Thoth. And again, this was a spontaneous painting at the outset. Um, I actually started it on the eclipse that we had while I was living in Olympia. I think that was 2018. Mm -hmm. um, so I was viewing the eclipse and felt just this insane surge of energy and inspiration and went back to my studio where I had this giant um, four by four foot blank canvas and just started going at it. And really quickly I saw the beak of the ibis and I saw the crocodile head and uh, the arm of Thoth. And I knew that it was gonna be a painting of um, Thoth or Mercurius or Hermes, but I didn't know what shape it was gonna take. And so it was that day that that shape was determined. And um, yeah, then it just, it took me a while to finish and everything unfolded from there, but you can see Again, this connection between the above and the below, the reflection in the water kind of um, speaking to that uh, reflection of the macrocosm and the microcosm and the transfiguration of the crocodile being at the same time the transfiguration of Hermes Trismegistus or Thoth. And you can see three of his aspects there. So the ibis-headed Egyptian god Thoth and then this sort of mercurial figure in the background that little face peeking out mm -hmm. and then the um cynocephalic ape or the dog-headed baboon kind of appearing in the celestial realm to the right of his beak i see it yeah yeah and then it's also a very hermaphroditic form there um it's both a male and female body combined in one and so that's part of the transfiguration that's happening is this blending of the opposites and um, yeah, this was um, depicting also another place in Olympia, um, the Capitol Lake, which I spent a lot of time walking around and the Capitol building, which is a really yeah. prominent feature of Olympia. And I spent a lot of time wandering around that building and around the lake, thinking about Hermeticism and Hermes and um, <laughs> reflecting on the elements in nature. And so, yeah, that's all kind of in here. Um, but it's also a little bit about the superiority of the spiritual law, which is like those hand there with the onk kind of coming down over that Capitol building. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the superiority of the spiritual law over the human law. You didn't know, walk into the Capitol and say, hi, would you, I'd like to talk to you about my Lord and Savior Hermes. Do you have a moment? No. I did not storm the Capitol, no. <laughs> the small Capitol. And the, yeah, well, the crocodile reminds me of, uh, what's his name? Sebek eating Keck. So, exactly. So. Yeah, I'm a I'm a big Sebek fan. I Are you? He scares me. Wow. Yeah. 
I have a thing with crocodiles, so that they appear a lot. Mm. Yeah. With the bear, the sloth bears scare me. Oh. <laughs> and this one is called Ultimum Conjunction or the Last Conjunction. And it's the royal eagles of Jupiter, which are the royal eagles of projection. So Jupiter is associated with the alchemical process of projection, which in the final stage of uh, generating the philosopher's stone in alchemy, um, the way that the stone is tested is through projection. And so it's often described of as a powder where it's sprinkled onto other metals and then um, its potency is tested. And, you know, if it's uh, properly potent and refined and everything, it'll have the ability to transmute all metals into their most exalted form. So lead into gold. Um, but on another level, this idea of projection has to do with the way that we project our consciousness and the way that we project our imagination. And so if the philosopher's stone can be equated with uh, full inner realization of one's essential divine creative nature, then projection of the philosopher's stone is how well are we able to project our imagination into reality, into creating through our imagination. So this painting has a lot to do with that. It's also um, um, in honor of Jupiter and his royal eagles, which he was said to send out in two directions to find the center of the world. And so where they crossed and where they met again was um, over Delphi, and this was said to be the navel or the omphalos of the world. Interesting. Wonderful. All right. One more. And mm -hmm. da, da, da. We got an owl. Yeah. What is the title of this one? It's, I'm blanking. Oh, uh, Fructus Mortis, the fruit of death. Um, I have a pretty strong connection with the hawthorn tree. Um, spent a lot of time communing with them. Uh, in Olympia and learning about their connection with the underworld and with death and with transformation and also reflecting on how the four seasons of the Hawthorne reflect the four stages of the alchemical process. So in winter, we get this sort of thorny bramble and, um, you know, those thorns representing the pain and the separation that occurs with the first stage of alchemy. And then um, the buds or the flowers that begin to form the white flowers representing the albedo, that process of purification, the watery process. And then as they ripen um, into their red form, that reaches the final stage of the alchemical opus. And so that's kind of represented here with the red berries um, representing that rubedo or reddening phase of the alchemical opus. And um, at the same time, this was based on a real experience that I had with an owl in Olympia, um, two different times within a period of about three weeks, I um, observed an owl, like very close to me, uh, catch a serpent and carry it back up to the tree mm -hmm. and eat it and then fly away. Um, so this happened two different times and I was with another person at the time so we both observed it on both occasions. It was a uh, quite profound and intense. And um, the owl I associate with death and transformation and letting go and connection with the other world. And so for me at the time, it was a big message about having to change some things and to let go of some things that were very dear to me. 
And the all the times that owl has ever appeared to me always have that message. So I take um, yeah the owl very seriously when it chooses to appear. And yeah, that's what this painting is about. Beautiful. Yeah. So should everybody. Well, that's uh, yeah incredible. And thank you for allowing us to see this. And uh, I think uh, Vance had it, your your address, and I put it briefly on the screen. I'll have it on the show notes. But Wait. for those on audio, where can they find out? Because your art is all there on your website. Yeah, well, I have a website, and that's my name. So that's marlena7bremner.com. Um, Marlena is M-A-R-L-E-N-E, and seven is spelled out. Last name, B-R-E-M-N-E-R. And you can find my whole gallery there, um, prints to purchase, um, also information about the book and also the upcoming book, which is going to be released in July of this year, um, which goes even deeper into the alchemical process and creativity. And I'm also on Patreon, so you can subscribe to my Patreon for as little as a dollar a month. And I've got a blog on there and then various rewards at different tiers. And um, I'm on social media on Instagram as uh, at M the number seven artist, M seven artist. And on Facebook, um, my full name, Marlena seven Bremner dash artist. Um, and also the Patreon, you can find me as seven art. So, awesome. yeah. so a lot of ways to connect. And um, yeah, I hope you do. Yeah, and definitely get the book. Well, we better wrap it up. Events. Any last qu one quick question from the audience? Quick oh, one. one quick question. That's a hard one. Well, how can how can people make her their life? That how was, can they make it their life? Yeah, no, how can they make it benefit their lives? That that's what the question was from one of the uh, listeners, hmm. viewers. How can what they make it? Benefit? Well, I think. For one, just immersing oneself in the hermetic teachings. So especially the um, like the Corpus Hermeticum and the Emerald Tablet and just kind of contemplating these teachings, I think, is really a great way to start. Um, and from there, as you kind of learn more, you can start to familiarize yourself with the seven planetary deities and even begin a planetary practice where you, you know, every day every day is um, associated with a different planet. So every day of the week, and you can begin with this just as a way to meditate on these different energies. And so, you know, today is Wednesday. So for instance, I'm wearing blue, which I associate with Mercury. There's all kinds of different correspondence charts you can find um, to look at colors and plants and incenses and metals and stones that correspond with spe uh, specific planets. And so, um, each day of the week, you can kind of work with these things and, and learn more and more about the planets and have this as the basis for a planetary devotional practice. Emerald Tablet, uh, Emerald Tablet, good place to start too? Yeah, Emerald Tablet is great. And the Corpus Hermeticum, I'd say those are probably the best places to start. And then um, you can branch out from there and get into the more technical, magical and astrological and alchemical works. But I think it's good to start with these kind of mystical teachings first to get the essence of, of hermeticism. Yeah. Let it go into your veins, imagination, contemplation. Once it kicks in mm -hmm. breaking the bonds of fate, you'll have experiences like 
like nothing else. Well, wonderful. Well, we at the end, uh, people in the chat room, thank you as always for keeping us company. Good questions, good conversations. You are the best. And the best too is also the Moondog Vans. Vans for thanks for being the shepherd of men, the poimandris. And the <laughs> yes, my teachings go far and wide. <laughs> It's a pleasure to be with everybody here and uh, very beautiful artwork, Seven, and um, glad to have seen it. Thank you so much. And thank you both for hosting and facilitating. And thanks to all the listeners and everybody for their questions. It's been, yeah, it's been great. Really wonderful. Mm -hmm. yeah, and for everybody, the audio version will be out. Uh, please have a good rest of your solstice. Have a good Christmas. And keep Hermes in mind. Well, Seven, thank you very much. And we look forward to your next book as you go down the, the road of alchemy. So. All right. Thank you, Miguel. Thank you, Vance. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading to the airport, right? Yeah, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR.